1: Welcome to another edition of Psychology Has it Backwards? I'm Judy Sedgman and I'm here with
0: Christine Heath.
1: And uh, we're going to talk some more to you about addictions. Last week we introduced the idea of addictions being the byproduct of our thinking about what would make us feel better of our, our attempts to get over insecurity, the th- insecure thinking we have by uh, you know something that we have decided or thought. Is going to make us feel better, and um, I, I, I. It occurred to me while we were talking about that that a lot of things that people are addicted to are look positive, you know, to them and to to the world. You know, like overworking for a lot of people, they think, "Oh, he's a really hard worker," and the person may just be. You know, burning himself at both ends of the candle, as they say, burning the candle at both ends in his life, and is miserable and exhausted. But you know, he's a hard worker, and that's an admirable quality. And I thought about a client that I had at one time who was a was an exceptionally talented and very highly regarded surgeon. And um, he was; people would come from distance to watch him operate. He was really good. And he, uh, he he worked in a very, very, very technical specialty that was required tremendous concentration and skill. And he would operate for hours. He would operate for like 12, 13, 14 hours at a time. And the nurses would finally kind of say, look, we can't, you got to stop. You know, you can't, you, no more patients today because they they couldn't imagine that he had the stamina to keep doing it. But he would, you know, they said, you know, he would operate until he fell dead at the, in front of the operating table if we didn't try to talk him out of it. And then he would go back to his office. And the interesting thing was the nurses were in awe of him. And the nurses that worked with him in the operating room thought he was like wonderful because he was right there. He would ask for the instrument. He was, you know, right on top of everything. And he kept everybody in order in the operating room. The people who worked in his office couldn't stand him because he complained and he yelled at people and he was difficult and he would change his mind in midstream. And he would ask a lot of questions that really he didn't need to ask them. They knew what they were doing and he would be critical and, and uh, angry a lot. And they, they thought he was impossible. He had very high turnover in his office staff and the nurses would fight for the opportunity to be with him in the operating room, which I thought was very interesting. And then I suddenly realized What he didn't understand was when he was in the operating room, he would say how good he felt. He felt so on top of things. And surgery was such a wonderful challenge. And it was so exciting when it worked out. And I realized that's the only time in his life that he really knows what it's like to be in the present moment. Mm. You know, because it was so natural to him and so exciting to him and he loved surgery and he would forget about his life. It's like he'd, he'd forget about himself entirely and just be there for the patient and for the procedure. And I was just beginning at that time, I was just getting into the principles and I realized, oh, my gosh, he has no idea that it has anything to do with the way he thinks about everything else in his life. So he had no enjoyment in anything else he did in his life. He was always arguing with people. He was dissatisfied. He would be angry with his family. His kids didn't like him. You know, had this really fractious relationships in life in this one area where he just was happy as he could be. And I thought, he's addicted to surgery. And that's he thinks that surgery is the only time he feels good. He's got that in his mind. That's the one thing I know how to do. I don't know how to not very good at the rest of my life. And uh, and he had these all this thinking around surgery being the one time in his life that he really felt good. And that was kind of feeding his uh, desire to be in the in the operating room. And it's kind of a, it becomes circular. The more you think that it's important to you and it's the best part of your life and it's the only thing you really enjoy, the more it is and The more you think, unfortunately, the rest of my life sucks, and I just everything else is terrible and goes wrong, the more it does and it's very subtle how our thinking works to to keep us uh, attached to certain things that we've had you know a moment of uh, happiness while doing them.
0: You know, no, it's, it's, it's a, a, really a really difficult thing to see when it's the way that you do life. Mm-hmm. So, like kids that kind of get addicted to video games can't see what's happening with them. But frequently, they get into a really kind of depressed state of mind because they're not really connecting with life that's real and alive in the moment. And all of their excitement and all of their connections sometimes to other kids, they're doing online, especially now during the pandemic. But there's all kinds of things, whether it's work or whether it's a drug or an alcohol that we get so much thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know like even like this is a small thing but how many people get addicted to their iPhones their no. their their phones like they got to look at it every 30 seconds you it's like somehow some something's going to happen in the world or somebody's going to send you a text or something's going to happen that you have to respond to immediately mm-hmm. and being able to like put that aside and not be so information addicted I mean I think that's that's something we all get into these days is this era of information but you know what information has no feeling it's dead thought <laughs> and so it doesn't matter how much information the best you can get is excited afraid maybe but some kind of excitement where you get you get really tense from it but it doesn't really give you a sense of serenity mm-hmm. or a sense of well-being that has to come from within you mm-hmm. so Treatment, I think, has been kind of focused on helping people to change their habits by analyzing their past, by kind of fixing all the awful things they did to other people while they were in the state of mind that was prominent or an addiction was prominent. You know, because you're so unhappy that your thinking is so bad in general that you do lots of things that aren't very helpful or coming from health. Mm-hmm. But that's just the product of living in a really insecure state of mind, is that our mind is constantly going, trying to think of something we can do to feel better, something we can do to be successful, something we can do to, um, to make a living, what, whatever it might be. But we've placed... That natural state of mental well-being, where we're calm and secure and happy, outside of us. Mm-hmm. And when it's out, when it's on the outside, you're chasing. It's like, it kind of reminds me, you know, like in in Florida, they have those dog races where uh-huh. they have the little uh, fake rabbit at the end of the thing, and it's always just beyond the dogs. And that's kind of like life. It's like it's always we're always kind of. Beyond the dogs. We can't ever catch up to it. So you keep going faster and you get more addictions and it's just a really a state of mind.
1: You wanna know something funny, Chris, is that they've stopped doing that in Florida because somebody realized it was really cruel to trick the dogs that way. Oh. There was not yeah. it was not a real rabbit, they were never gonna catch the rabbit. And I the animal cruelty people actually persuaded the racing commission that they couldn't do that anymore because it was cruel to the dogs. So I thought that's what we're doing to ourselves. Yes. chasing
0: fake rabbits, not realizing we're hurting ourselves. That's right. That's why that, you know, that definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome is we have in our heads That if I do this, I'll feel better, but it doesn't work. So then instead of like saying, Oh, that doesn't work. We go, Oh, well, I should do it more often. I should do it with different things. I should do it with people. I should, but it doesn't occur to us to step back and say, Wait a minute. My good feeling doesn't come from that thing. That creates, in fact, hell in my life. Right.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's hard for us sometimes to recognize that good feelings are completely non-contingent
0: mm-hmm.
1: because normally when you feel good, you look around and look to see what to, what to blame. <laughs> you know, It's like, when you feel mad, you look around and you say, who is making me mad? Well, it's like, sometimes when people get a beautiful, good feeling, they'll go, oh, it's sunsets or, oh, it's this wonderful yoga class, or it's that particular kind of music or it you know, it's that particular place. And people get, I I honestly experienced that myself at a certain point in my life when my thinking was going a million miles an hour and I was very stressed as pre-principles. And I used to really think that Disney World was the Magic Kingdom because we would, we, my husband and I were both going so fast and we were so busy with our businesses and our life and our kid and everything else that we would never take a whole vacation, and Disney World is only three hours from where we were living, and so we would say, "Well, we'll, do, we'll take we'll take our daughter to Disney World for three days, and it would take a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and that would call it a vacation." And every time we would go to Disney World, you know, we'd be into making it nice for our daughter as our one little brief vacation, and we would get those paddle boats that you take out on the lake, you know, and you you run them with your feet. And, and my daughter loved it because her parents were doing all the work and she was getting a ride, you know, and she's watching us work hard to paddle the boat. She she would clap for us. It was really cute. <laughs> and, you know, come on, go, go, mom. And, um, and we'd get out on that lake and it would be beautiful and sunny and warm and the water was lovely and our daughter was adorable and really cute and all into it. And all of a sudden we'd get an answer to something. Yeah, I'm mean, seriously. I, many uh, we decided to buy our house. All many big decisions we made in our life we made on that silly lake in the paddle boat. And I used to think, man, there's they have something in the water here or something. I mean, it's just amazing how we've you know we've made so many good choices at Disney World. <laughs> And it wasn't until later that I realized, you know, no, you don't have to get addicted. You don't have to run to Disney World every time you got to make a decision, you know, like get addicted to going into the battle boat. I just never experienced that state of mind that often. But all it was, was a different state of
0: being for myself. Yeah. I think that's the hope to me. It's like if, you know, like um, people used to try to stop whatever addiction they had, and they would kind of call it white knuckling it, you know, because it was so hard because those thoughts look so real. Right. They Consciousness just takes that thought that that candy bar needs to be in your mouth right. or that, you know, that beer needs to be had in order to have a good time or that I have to work more. There's an urgency, kind of a, a feeling that, we get caught up in when we're focused on the outside world as the source of it because it just isn't. And so it doesn't matter how many times you do it or with who or how, it's not going to give you that place of serenity. And to me, the the principles really kind of help us to understand the serenity prayer, which is common in most addiction programs, which is God grant me the serenity. Now I would say We should say, God has granted you serenity. And all you need to do is recognize what you uh, have the courage, uh, the wisdom. I gotta say that God grant me the the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, which is the outside world Mm -hmm. and other people and things outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. And the courage to change the things I can. And really, it's not courage, it just is really being able to recognize that your thinking is what's causing the perception of your life that you're living in, the perception of yourself that you're living in, the perception of everything that you're living in, Mm -hmm. and the wisdom to know the difference. So if you focus on really quieting down and looking inside of yourself for your own answers and you get that change of heart, Mm -hmm. you awaken to the fact that that behavior is really not something you want to do. It's just something you think you need to do because that's the only way you've seen to get some kind of a change in the feeling state you're in. Mm-hmm. But once you connect with that feeling, it just loses its power. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have times when you get stressed out and you go into a lower mood and suddenly, like, I think I had a thought to smoke probably 20 years after I smoked. I'd, every once in a while, I'd get in a low mood and this thought would come in my head like, ooh, a cigarette would really taste good. <laughs> but because I knew that was just a thought from my past, it didn't feel like it was true. So I didn't go buy a pack of cigarettes. I just told myself like, wow, you are in a low mood. You better go home yeah. and relax.
1: <laughs> Boy, that's certainly true, isn't it? Once you're onto yourself, it's really hard to trick yourself again. Mm-hmm. Even when you have the thoughts, you know, you ca- you catch you catch them, you catch them and go, oh, there's that old thought. And, um, you know, I, I worked one time, with, I was working with, um, with some veterans, and there was a person who had been uh, clean and sober, as they always put it, for something like 18 years. And he said, you know, I'm getting tired of calling myself an alcoholic. I mean, I, I've been clean and sober longer than I was an alcoholic. <laughs> when do I get to stop saying I'm an alcoholic? And I thought, that's the interesting thing about it. See, we still are attributing the problem to something else other than our insecure thinking and the answer to getting over that thing rather than to the fact that it was always within you to to feel better on your own. And it's funny because I talked to him about that and he said, yeah. You know, I'm just going to stop saying that. I, you know, I can go to the meetings. I don't have to stand up and say, I'm an alcoholic. I'll just say, Hey, I'm Joe. You know, <laughs> And if they don't like it, they can correct me. It was so funny. He just got funny to him that suddenly that he had to define himself that way, even though it had been so many years since that, that particular addiction had even appealed to him. And I think that that to me, it was a moment of truth for him, the realization that that's just what I thought I was. And while I thought I was that, I was always afraid I could do it again. And when I, and, you know, he said, at one point he said, now I realize I'm just a human being that had a habitual thought that I don't think anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that's, um, I think that, You know, where that comes from is that, to me, the world, psychology, is looking at people as they are, as if that's the way they always are, right? right? Like, we don't see levels of consciousness in people, and maybe that's what we need to talk about next. But it's like that we treat people in the state of mind they come to us in. And then we want them to change their thinking and their behavior at the same level that they're manifesting this addiction. Well, that just doesn't work very well, which is why we're not very successful at treating the addiction. But if we help people to change their state of mind, their level of consciousness rises and they literally create a different reality and they don't react to it. They don't respond and they don't want to use in the same way that they did before. So I think that's, that's a huge difference in how we see helping people with addictions is that we're not into managing uh, a life and feeling bad about whatever decisions we've made at a lower level of consciousness. We're really pointing people toward the hope that they can live in a higher level of consciousness and not be driven by their own thinking to do things that they know they don't really want to do. Yeah, that's so true.
1: And, and also, I, I think the other difference is that we don't really spend a lot of time dwelling on the reason they ever got addicted in the first place or the past things that happened or their troubles or, you know, it's always uh, surprising to me how many people had just gotten exhausted going over the same old stories over and over again in every program and every session that they had been to uh, because they were trying to get to the bottom of their addiction. And all it did it was keep whatever was troubling them on their mind and keep them insecure. And I, I think people, people don't realize that that when you when you continually think about your past and things that you're ashamed of or things that you wish you hadn't done or things that happened to you that were terrible or if that's that becomes what you primarily think about there's two problems with it. One is it keeps you in that state of mind of being afraid or upset or angry or guilty or whatever it might be because those thoughts are creating that reality. And the second thing is it makes people hopeless because they feel like, what can I do? I, I, I did those things and I'm not, I can't undo them. I can't, instead of realizing, you know what, that was then and I, I'm different now and I see life differently and I've changed. And I've changed my mind, and that's where the hope comes from. Is like you know, it came from within me that I saw like that guy who said, "I'm really just sick of calling myself an alcoholic." You know, when do I get to stop? I don't drink, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I I think that's a that's a missing piece in in the field right now. It's just the realization, you know, that people aren't always in any one particular state of mind. And no matter how long they've been stuck somewhere, when they get an insight and they transcend that stuck
0: place, they really are different. And that's a wrap for today. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things we'll maybe talk about coming up in one of the next sessions is what I'd say is the innocence that we all live in and how we could get into these messes without realizing it Mm -hmm. and and what forgiveness can do for us as well sounds great okay we'll see you next time okay mahalo everyone for listening aloha aloha we hope you heard something new and that you will continue to join us to challenge the prevailing thinking about the possibilities for health in everyone to subscribe to the podcast visit our website at psychologyhasitbackwards.com